day on Sala Puja. The puja or the celebration or the honoring in the month of Asala, which is just a constellation in the, in the sky, in the Indian system. That's particularly known as you recognize for the commemorating occasion when the Buddha uh, went to the deer park at Isipatane, Saunath as it's called now, and um, met his five former comrades and gave them some, some very significant advice. Teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and particularly begins with the avoidance of two other paths. So it's really uh, framing uh, experience in terms of trajectories that people follow, the trajectory and why they follow it, searching for some fulfillment, some unity, some sense of, ah, I've got it, free from that, I have this. And this uh, operates in two particular ways. One is that which wants to merge with experience. And on a gross level, this is sensory contact. Something that wants to merge accumulate as many pleasant sights, sounds, touches, fragrances and ideas, make them into a nice, good blend. You've got it together, got that, just sit and enjoy it. The other is the kind of getting rid of things that that, uh, we don't enjoy. You can get rid of uh, this nagging uh, hunger for sense contact, this is mortification. And so, swinging chitta from one extreme to another, sometimes referred to as bhava bhava, wishing for it. Bhava is the drive for continuing existence. What I am now, let that continue in the future. That's always assuming we are something now, we want to keep being it, make it better. Or the Vibhava, not wanting to be what one is in the present and get rid of it. Annihilation. So the two types, paths, inclinations, mind oscillates between. If only I could accomplish that, if I could really accomplish that, Getting all those things that would make me really nestle down to something comfortable and assured, that would be it. Or if I could just get out of this, not have any of this experience at all, that would be it. Oblivion <laughs> or, or eternity. <laughs> and it's kind of like movement of the mind. Yeah. Which the ordinary person, we don't really see it in that way, but we see that, that flickering. Uh, oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's great. Oh, we're going in a good way. And then, oh no, that's wrong, that's bad. No, no, how can we stop that happening? Mm-hmm. Oscillation. 
way that sense contact touches us, ideas, and of course, uh, not just sense contact, but uh, the mind creates scenarios, gloom scenarios. Oh no, it's going wrong. It's falling apart. Keep going like this, we're usually going to be a mess. Mm-hmm. It fills in gaps, dots that lead in the path of uh, despair. Mm-hmm. Oh no, we could do more of this and that and the other, and then we feel great. In that direction, trajectories the mind adopts, kind of sum up experience, shape it a particular way, lead me, lead me on, lead me out. So you can consider these uh, trajectories or paths or inclinations. We can probably recognize that this is something that everyone experiences. And naturally, the genius genius quality of the Buddha was was meeting people and saying what they knew already. So he didn't teach Buddhism. As such, you can see, come up with a set of ideas. Say, well, what about this? How do you see this? And present something they know already that looks at it very deeply, the implications of that. And the uh, mostly pointing out the shortcomings of the trajectories that the mind is following. It goes so far, and then you start getting pressure, greedy pressurized, want more, not getting enough, or what you had falls apart, suffering, or getting away from things, not having to deal with things, and then sooner or later, sickness uh, comes at you, or unpleasant things happen to you. And because... uh, some of this, these movements start off very subtly. We don't really recognize it. It starts with just normal, normal, just having a kind of pleasant, interesting time. It's fine. But this is why we don't see this, the building up, following all these trajectories. It starts with just the kind of sensing, identifying with pleasant experiences and rather fondling them and increasing them, wanting more of them. What's wrong with that? Because you don't see the we don't see the beginning of that. How that leads on, where that leads on to. Bonding, you say, piehi. Affection. Being bonded. Bonded to that which is agreeable. It changes. Where does the bonding occur? The yoking. And so 
But then the Buddha is not saying you shouldn't have any, there shouldn't be any pleasant qualities. In fact, notably and rather rather uh, dramatically, he said, I teach a path of pleasure. <laughs> I teach the pleasure of the mind not being thrown this way and that way and grabbing and failing and losing being bonded to that which must part, which must fall away, struggling against that which must happen. I teach the relinquishment of that. The mind dwells in its own pleasure, the pleasure, the happiness of a liberated mind dwells in itself, does not dwell in sense contact, does not dwell in aversion to it, does not, does not dwell. The happiness of the Buddha, non-abiding. Now, you, know, you see these, these uh, trajectories that he pointed out to his five former colleagues in their particular way of, of, of following it, quite deliberate asceticism, mortification, pointing out, actually, this is an act of cruelty. This is an act of aversion. Following an act of cruelty and aversion can't be good. Following an act of greed, sensuality, can't be good. Because it leads to fever, hunger for more, and then misery when that which we are bonded to passes. So you see, we don't, we don't follow those paths. Don't follow those paths. And there's a patipada, a majjima patipada. And patipada means pati is thorough, complete, uh, full. Pada steps means these steps are both all of them are in a way firm and complete. And reliable in themselves, so you can really put your weight on it. It's not going to fall away like a very firm path step. It's a step you both make the part the step thoroughly, and the step you make can carry your weight. It's not going to let you down. And later, these are called samma gutti, complete or fulfilled view, full perspective. Full perspective, not a partial perspective, not a perspective based upon some dogma, theory, bias, opinion, inclination, just full perspective. How is it? Samadhi. And so this is the uh, finish point, the beginning of, of this eightfold path. So it's following this. So this is the ancient path trodden by the fully enlightened ones of former times. Walking along, following this ancient path, I've come to know the origin of aging and death. I've come to know the origin of aging and death. I've come to know the ceasing of aging and death. I've come to know the path to the ceasing of aging and death. I've come, I've seen 
you come to know the origin, craving, the drive for existence, clinging, feeling, come to know them directly as they are, have come to know their origin, their ceasing, and the path leading to their ceasing. This is why it's called the Sugato, the one who has has happily and well gone, truly gone the full course, the Tathagata, the one who has gone fully the whole course, how experience happens, how we get, how the mind gets meshed up in it, tangled in it, stuck to it, fabricating perceptions and positions and people and events out of a momentary, moment by moment arising of sight, sound, mental impression, inclination, fabricating something that doesn't hold up. It's, a, it's fabricating something that's always sinking. If you stop the fabricating, the mind opens to something that doesn't sink. It opens to itself. How could that sink? How could that fail? It's right here. It's always here. And yet, this mind, instead of realizing itself, it's looking out for something to get born into, something to get away from, always frightened, always worried, always thirsty, always hankering, fidgeting. These patterns and habits are very strong. That's why the Buddha, you know, laid down a path and embellished training principles for that. So it's... it's, uh, and this is something that then the beauty of it also is that because just like suffering is something we call all experience and not and wanting not to suffer is something we all experience and the oscillation, the movements of the mind is something we all experience you know, and the training path is something we can all experience we can all commit to it this gives a really strong sense of purpose and uh, harmony and a particular language and a particular uh, behaviours that uh, as we manifest them in ourselves and we see them in others constantly guides us and holds us onto this path in training situations so they're in fact uh, very rich in that possibility because, because the path is so accessible and she to acknowledge it's things such as just do good and refrain from doing bad and you take that instead of looking at sense contact for guidance you look at management you could say not what immediately comes to you but we're unified not on what comes to us but on the fact of managing it managing and acknowledging Managing it. First kind of management is ethical management. So then you can operate within this Dharma realm, starting with ethics, 
So it's giving one, all of us a certain communality, a certain steady ground. You know, things that, that touch my body don't necessarily touch yours. Things that are my eyes see, things that cause pleasure to arise aren't necessarily the same as yours. But what's unifying is that we get to see no, no of hatred, avoid hatred, avoid abuse, avoid intoxication. Avoid indulgence. And so all of us using this to steer, we find a certain unity in that. And there's a particular quality of harmony that arises with that. And the harmony is something whereby we can get a community uh, operating and feeling comfortable with each other. This is why it's a path of pleasure. You know, ethics is not for righteousness, it's for pleasure. <laughs> it's not to make moral judgments of other people, it's to find this subtle kind of pleasure, which is the pleasure of you know, harmony, non-conflict, uh, uh, compassion, patience, you know, in our behaviour, sensitivity. And we find unity in that, and something satisfying in that, if you put your attention on it. So we recognize in our ethical training, it's not this convention, you could say, and there's intention. And so these have to work together. Convention's something we can see. So it helps, all right, she's doing that, he's doing that, or reminds me, yeah, you don't, don't do that. But also with convention must be clear and aware of uh, this is not just about obedience to law, some abstract laws. It's about uh, using protocols to keep one attentive, common language of protocol, common behavior of protocol, which is that enables us to bring forth skillful intentions, intentions of sharing, intentions of non-abuse, intentions of uh, deep deliberation. And the second factor of the path is about that quality of intention, recognizing that uh, at any moment, your mind is going to go. Is going to do something. <laughs> it's going to incline one way or another. It doesn't do nothing. Even if you think you're doing nothing, the mind will t- is doing something. It's going to be operating somewhere or another. So, can you get it so that you're steering your intent? And he said there are basically. It's not that complex. There are three kinds of intent to be steered away from. So you notice the wrong intent. So often in the Buddha's teaching, it's first of all pointing out that which is um, damaging or dangerous and just backing off from it, releasing it. It's about what we don't do. In this respect, these three unskillful roots, the root of sensuality, the root of uh, something like a malice, 
and the root of cruelty. And when the Buddha talked about these, he said, you know, he could witness these happening in his own mind when he was practicing. You know, I don't think the Buddha was actually, you know, as a practitioner, thinking of going down the pub or, <laughs> you know, partying, but he could see the tendency to, to seeking something in the sense world, fantasizing maybe, imagining. Seeking something comfortable in the sense world. Or the tendency towards um, irritability, just you know, annoyed with oneself, annoyed with others, impatient. See, so these these fundamental intents are not isn't necessarily that, that apparent at first. They they're the roots. So we might say something like impatience is a form of malice. I'm getting angry and annoyed and I'd like to get past that thing. Impatience. You can see people even going shopping or at a, at a shop, people, oh, get out of my way. <laughs> you know, they don't really hate the person so much as just the person is too slow, so they get, get out of my way. Oh, hurry up. Get, stop. Hurry up. What's that? Impatience. It's a certain kind of violence. Malice. This, this root of that which forces to bash something out of the way, and uh, it's so so rampant. You know, kick your television set if it's not working. <laughs> totally, literally, you know. <laughs> it's just an expression that the mind does when it finds itself frustrated. Oh, dang it, smash! So. <laughs> Be aware of that tendency when we get exasperated, frustrated, exasperated with somebody else, arguing. Why can't you see my point? You know, why are you so thick? What's happening? You know, this, this, this is the, the second unskillful root. And of course with ourselves. And the third unskillful root is called cruelty, which means I don't care. It starts with withdrawing empathy, withdrawing fellow feeling. Oh, that's his problem. It's not up to me anyway. So what? Listen to that tone, which one can have towards oneself, giving up on oneself, a lack of love, a lack of empathy, a lack of warm-heartedness, withdrawal of that. And this starts as a kind of Sense of indifference and uh, and starting from that place of indifference or lack of fellow feeling, and uh, this lack of fellow feeling has hugely disastrous effects. You can see human beings. How does it? People shoot each other. How is it that people don't even know each other? Shoot each other. Soldiers, police. How does that happen? I've got, of course, you're one of those. Yeah, so as soon as you see somebody as an object, one of those, then this is the prerequisite for cruel action.
Because once you see somebody as one of those, then if you follow that, that doesn't count, stupid idiot, something like that, or nationality, or gender, or type, some kind of one of those, stereotype, and dismiss them. And this is the beginning of a trajectory that allows people to kill each other, and torture each other, and brutalize each other, because you're just one of those. Slavery, where you could take people, fellow human beings, and treat them as, as a commodity, pack them in a ship where they could hardly move, and throw them overboard if they were sick. Throw them to the sharks, because they're just commodities. Huh? People do that to other human beings without really getting it, what they're doing, because the person's just become a piece of merchandise. And this is unfortunately very rife, trafficking of human beings, slavery, trafficking of human beings, because they're just one of those. So those three roots. And without those, if those aren't present, what does the mind, what does the mind, what does the heart do if those are not present? It, it sort of opens, expands, it's unconstricted. There's a feeling of fellowship, a feeling of contentment, quality of ease. Why it's a pleasure. This pleasure principle, <laughs> the pleasure of Dhamma. And when we go, we go back to the sense pleasure. Notice that the three harmful roots, two of them are aversive. So <laughs> we can recognize with this analysis how a lot of behavior is aversive, either dismissive or directly malicious in some respect or another. Only one aspect of it is, is accumulative, greedy, passionate, wanting. How does that, you know, how does that feel? What does it feel like to have those mind doing that? A mind that's impatient, frustrated, opinionated, conceited, looking down upon, dismissing, not caring about other people, not caring about life, human, animals. Billions and billions, billions, billions upon billions of animals killed just so we can eat them. Killed just for fun. Don't shoot them just for fun. Because they're just game. They call them game. <laughs> How is, you know, what kind of mind is that? How happy is that? How fulfilled is that? I was walking in Hammer Wood one day and I was on Morehouse Lane there was a man standing there on, on the new bridge and he had, his, he had a fishing rod in his hand and the line was dangling in the Hammer Stream on now Woodland and he said, what, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, oh, I'm fishing he said, but that's our stream fishing is not allowed here we're, we're looking after creatures 
It's my right to fish. I've always fished here. <laughs> it's my right to fish, you know, it's my right to torture creatures. <laughs> you know, see, it's backed up with these you know, views. It's my right because I. What? So I said, but there, there's fish, you know. That doesn't hurt them. Well, I don't know about that. Getting a hook in your jaw and getting yanked out of the water doesn't sound like much fun to me. <laughs> Did you ever ask them? Did you, how do you know it doesn't hurt them? They look, they look happy when you pull them out? The man was not listening. <laughs> he says, look, please leave the fish alone, you know. So this is our, we're looking after them. No, I just left it there. Why do we need to do that? Where does the idea of supremacy come from? We are the supreme creature. We're supremely brutal. <laughs> supremely avaricious. What a title, eh? Every other creature runs away from us. How happy is that? So today, uh, as we aware, these uh, three men took the Anagarika precepts or the eight precepts. You've all taken the eight precepts today. Some of you have taken them twice, so you've had sixteen precepts in one day. Really. Making much of it. <laughs> and again, this is a, this is a training path. You know, look at those eight precepts. Refraining from, refraining from, refraining from, refraining from. It's don't do. Don't, it's not asking you to do a lot. In a way, it's just asking you to steer the mind away from harming. Harming creatures. Harming and supporting harming. Those those creatures that breathe, Pana creatures. Taking that which is not given, the root of greed, covetousness, acquisition, the belief that we'll be made happy by having something. A brahmacharya, the Brahma life, refraining from sexuality. Why do we do this? Sexuality is part of every human being's equipped with this. It's that which keeps the species going, and so on. And yet, sexuality is a very powerful energy, and there's better things to do with that energy. Sometimes people think this is just some kind of repressive regime. But actually I regard sexuality as a repressive regime. (laughs) It puts pressure on you. You know, when you have sexual desire, it's pretty pressing. Presses and presses and presses and pushes and burns. And so the Brahmacharya is not about repression so much as getting out of the pressure 
of sexual desire which constricts the mind into passion and drives. What's it like if that stops? Mind is free from that heat, that push, that itch, that drive, that manipulation, that fondling, that seeking. Free from that quality that urges, seems so innate, yet one could be free from it. What's the mind like when it's not hankering, craving, wanting, impassioned with energy. That energy is not lost, it's transmuted into something that's sustaining. Instead of your energy, your body energy running just through you know, sexual channels or sensory channels, you release it from that, you can open and suffuse the entire body with comfort and happiness. Piti Sukha, uplift, rapture, certain brightness and vibrancy and ease, freedom from fever, intensities, passions. That's happiness. Happiness is the relinquishment. What happens when the pressure is not on, when the heat's not on, that is happiness. The Brahma life. Brahma is the boundless gods, the boundless domains. It's even sometimes referred to, the Buddha is referred to as, as the Brahma. He has become Brahma. He has become boundless, limitless. His energy is not bound up in sensuality, constricted into desire. It's freed from that. How happy is that? How pleasant is that? How sustaining is that? How nourishing is that? The Buddha never regretted abandoning sexuality. He encouraged it. This is the Brahma life, the boundless life, the limitless life, the open life, pure as a polished shell, right. We're going to really reframe some of these uh, training steps. Yes, we refrain from, so that we're refraining from that which constricts, tangles um, our own mind, our intent, and affects others. Now, when we when these 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 first three. And of course, the, the fourth one, which is speech, when these are purified, how can we not live happily together? Nobody's manipulating to get you know, hold of somebody's body or you know, seek to impassion somebody. You know, competition, who's attractive, unattractive, getting something. We're not doing that. We're not gossiping, backstabbing, spreading bad speech around. How happy could that be? We really not just practice, practice, but dwelt in it. Dwelt in that boundless abiding that's there. This is something to 
bring to mind, even you reflect upon the precepts, and return to that aspiration, that determination, that resolution that brings you into this, and explore. You're not resolved upon repressing yourself, you're resolved upon liberating yourself. What does it feel like? When the, you know, the unwholesome is put aside, and settled. It's the only place the mind can settle. Why these are considered essential uh, for meditation and for samadhi, because this is where the mind is settled in itself. Bearing in mind that you know, samadhi is not concentrating on some particular thing. Samadhi is the mind is settled in itself. How could it not be settled in itself when it's freed from malice, greed, passion? It's, it is settled. It begins to know itself, its quality, its steadiness, its evenness, its suffusiveness. You feel it with an energy in your body. You feel it with a certain openness of heart. The relinquishment of regret, guilt. Your will towards others. Forgiving. This is not cleaning it. Taking the time to clean it. Clean it. Something very precious. This is we cultivate. In our practice, then, these are all, these precepts are pointing to a very important cultivation of purifying, cleaning, brightening our domain internally. And as that brightens your domain internally, it must. It must be something that includes other people. Person, because all these are about harming or not harming, being truthful or not being truthful, backstabbing or not backstabbing, deceiving or not deceiving, about how we are with others, they're relational, and how we are with ourselves. So the qualities of the happiness and the goodness naturally mean that we see others with a mind that's not tremble, with ill will, regret, competition, fear, negativity or passion. How happy is that? Can this be cultivated, enhanced, honoured, remembered, taken delight in? This is, of course, this process of Cultivation hinges around mindfulness. Again, mindfulness is not just about focusing your attention on a breath or a sensation. It's about it's much broader than that. It means you bear in mind that which is valuable to bear in mind. It's defined as when it's mindful, one bears in mind the meaning of teachings, even if they were given long ago. And that's what mindfulness is described as. So you could be mindful of 
bearing in mind the quality of non-greed, making a resolution for the Vasa. I know where I get a bit greedy. Let's just stop that. Be mindful of that resolution. I know where I start to slip and slide into casual habits. Stop that. Refrain. Mindful of that. Because there's something better here for a mind that is firm, resolute, steady, um, has self-respect. So mindfulness is the cultivation that keeps lingering on the meanings of the path, any aspect of it. Lingering so that the mind feeds, tunes to it. Ethics we attune to, not just the precepts we attune to, and make much of the qualities of hiri otapa, a sense of conscience and concern. Conscience means, am I am I living up to what's good in myself? Am I letting myself down? And concern, am I? affecting other people in a negative way you're mindful of that this gives you a really solid foundation you can keep going practical this is cultivation mindful one tends to one's own body mindfully there's a body versus something we're living with in a way it contains all the energies and the propensities for you know, skillful or unskillful conduct. So mindful, and it, it's something that can calm, steady the mind with. Mindful of that in the body which is steady and calm, easeful, not uh, caught up with passion or aversion clumsiness or rushing around it's mindful of the body let your mind settle using the body as a place to settle in standing walking sitting is this when you sit you sit when you walk you walk you don't walk thinking about where you're going to get to you walk feeling the body walking when you sit you sit feeling the body sit Ground beneath you, space around you, lingering in that. This is just this. This simplification and steadying the experience. So we linger in that. Because in this, there's no room for harming, for violation, for indulgence. We don't, and the fact that the mind is made complete by that. Settled and easeful. And as we practice this cultivations, it's uh, making your, your mode of practice that which is beautiful. Yeah, you practice with a mind that's intent on careful, attentive, skillful, sensitive to how we place our attention thoughts, on feelings, on ideas, on moods, on 
Is it sensitive? Is it firm? Is it clear? Guiding, guiding, guiding. There's this whole interconnection of the body and the mind that we work around to establish a sense of samadhi. Everything begins to unify and settle. So soon we'll be, we are going to dedicate some time simply to be sitting, walking, standing and reclining the next week or so. We can regard this as a kind of holiday. <laughs> this is not a worldly way. <laughs> can you imagine? What did you do on holiday? Well, I sat, you know, in a stone floor in a hall with a bunch of other people in silence. <laughs> yeah, and then what happened? Oh, bell rang after an hour. Then <laughs> yeah, what was it to talk about? Nothing. <laughs> it was a great holiday. <laughs> The amount of things I didn't do was fantastic. <laughs> I managed to drop a lot of doing. And relief. <laughs> relief. Not taking the burden off my mind of dealing and managing and thinking and figuring and planning and blaming and feeling annoyed and upsetting and fantasizing and regretting and feeling guilty and restless and wanting this and the other and taking a break from the craziness. <laughs> This is a holiday. It's a dumber holiday. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you know, of course. You know, notice that this is where your practices of right intent and sila and precepts bears fruit. Because if you trained your mind day after day after day to move away from those unskillful roots, you know, to let go of those unskillful roots, it begins to lose the habit of going in that place. You know, mind doesn't go into the fantasy because you've kind of lost the habit. It's not very, it's not pleasant fantasy, it's not a pleasant experience. Uh, you train it so it's just taking joy in what's actually present and firm and, and uh, Skillful and lingering in it. It's just the sense of placing your attention with a good thought, lingering in that, with a good attitude, lingering in that. Much better than just slide into fantasy, slide into regret, slide into the past, rush off into the future. Training it, training it, training it. Because this is going to lead to pleasure. Happiness, fulfillment, unity. So we can see how, uh, you know, it's almost like this is this is where we turn the world the right way up. It seems like it seems like this is such a strange, odd thing to be doing. But from this point of view, you think, why is everybody else so odd? Why, do they, <laughs> why are they doing all this running around, blaming, chasing, indulging, this, that, and the other, not feeling satisfied? Why don't they just abide in something present? And your own chitta, that which you can never be parted from, 
You can never be parted from it. Why don't you enjoy it? Make it a place you long to go to. It's so beautiful. This is our cultivation. So when the Buddha taught these steps, he said this is for the welfare of devas and humans. And, um, and leads to the pleasure of release. Refinement, release from conditioned phenomena, which are always subject to change and unsatisfactoriness. Release from that. This is blissful. So this is just a, a reminder and encouragement. Uh, really try to look at this uh, this practice path as uh, something that's. Uh, not just kind of a work project, but a skillful craft of the heart to to clear away the obstacles to fulfilment. Mm. And then one is that gives you the right attitude to practice. So I'll offer this for your reflection this evening. Sadhu